Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. John 3, as we look at today, probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, not just a verse in the Bible, but probably one of the most famous sayings, quotes, anywhere in the world, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life, and many of us were familiar with that verse, we've heard it so many times in this video, sometimes Something different kind of reminds us of what it means when it said, God loved the world that he gave his son. And just to watch the video and the portrayal of a baby just kind of reminds us of the cost it takes. Last week, as we began to look at the gospel of of John chapter 3, we saw the, the interchange with Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was one of the rulers of the Sanhedrin, which would make him one of 70 of the most powerful people in all of Israel at the time. And he went to Jesus at night and began to have this little back and forth with Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus stated to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gave the criteria to go to heaven, the criteria to see the kingdom of God. And it was that you must be born again. And Nicodemus, of course, was a little confused, a little, this was incredible, and we had this little exchange back and forth between the two of them. And it ended last week in verse 10, or verse 10 and 11, Nicodemus, he, he just couldn't really fathom it, and Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? We kind of leave Nicodemus there. He doesn't appear again in the Gospel of John for several more chapters, and so... Beginning in verse 11, what we're going to look at today, we're not sure if this was directed just at Nicodemus or to everyone at large or or how it went. But Jesus kind of fills in what was missing from just saying, hey, you must be born again. He says, well, this is the explanation of how that takes place. Fine that Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how exactly is a person born again? And Jesus, in this entire section, we're going to look at verse 11 through verse 21, talks about belief. You must believe. Believe in Christ. And as he goes through this explanation to Nicodemus and and everyone else that might be listening in here, he describes what, what this belief looks like, how it goes, and how it is the stumbling block, the obstacle, the belief in Jesus Christ that has existed and continues to exist and will exist until he comes back. So I'm going to ask you in the honor of God's word if you would stand this morning. As I begin to read John chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 11 all the way down to verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture, for this verse, Lord, that if all we were left with was John 3.16, it would be enough to show us the way. Lord, I pray this morning that you would challenge each and every person here to listen to your words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. One must believe in order to be born again. And when Jesus says, truly, truly, this is uh, the third or fourth time he has started a, a phrase here in the Gospel of John, saying, this is important, what I'm about to tell you. This is a foundational statement that I'm about to make. And so he begins, like I said, whether he's talking to Nicodemus, eventually it's probably to everybody, he begins by describing the objection to belief, or the objection to belief, and that just doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Why don't people believe? Well, it just it doesn't, doesn't seem right. I mean, that's kind of where we left Nicodemus last week when we looked at verse 9 when he says, how can these things be? And so Jesus then describes it. He says, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. Right here at the beginning, Jesus begins to divide humanity into two camps. The camp that believes, the ones that he refers to as we, and then the camp that doesn't believe. You see this when Jesus says, we uh, speak of what we know and, and, and talk about what we've seen. Who is the we? Is it just, and Jesus and who else? Well, Jesus at this point has some disciples that are with him. And if you remember, John the Baptist, has, he's been speaking for a while. And Jesus is, is part of them saying, listen, this is the collection of people that do understand what spiritual rebirth is, what it means to repent, what it means to turn and come to Christ. They're followers. Now, Jesus obviously doesn't have to repent and turn to himself, but he's, I'm with that category. I'm the Lord, the God of this group of people. And we testify to these things. We speak of these things. We bear witness to these things. And then halfway through uh, verse 11, it says, but you do not receive. Now, you've probably heard this joke before, but in English, we don't have a plural you unless you live in the South where you have y'all. Okay, so y'all, these are pretty much everything you see here is y'all. That's why we don't, we're pretty sure he's not just talking to Nicodemus because when it says you do not receive our testimony, if I had told you earthly things, all of these are y'all. He's talking about the collection of people that are in the camp of unbelief. They don't get it. If you're where I'm from, it's you guys. So there you go. You have that one. But he's, he's got these two groups of people. And he says, this is the, the difference is you don't believe. It doesn't make sense. And he describes this by saying, look, at, if I tell you earthly things you don't believe, how are you going to believe the heavenly things? What does he mean? What are the earthly things? Well, he has been describing to Nicodemus how it looks here on earth, what takes place. That there is, you know, when you turn to your sins, John the Baptist is baptizing people. Nicodemus is a, a ruler, a leader. He had the Old Testament scriptures. He had all of these things that take place here on earth that were pointing to Jesus. 
They were pointing to God sending his son, his Messiah. They were pointing to what was taking place in the ministry and life of Jesus, but Nicodemus didn't get it. He didn't understand what he, he observed, the earthly things taking place. And so Jesus says, listen, if you don't get this, it would make no difference at all. You would definitely not get it if I start explaining the big heavenly things. What takes place up there with God? What takes place with me being fully God and fully man or the Trinity? All of these things that he would explain that would be you know, whoop, right over his head. That's why Jesus then says if, in the next part, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. In other words, Jesus said, I've, I've come down from heaven. I know what's going on up there. I'm the only one that's done it. After this, there are those that die and come back like Lazarus or whatever. Jesus, I'm, I'm it. And so he's looking at Nicodemus saying, and, and, and the others that would be in the same camp as Nicodemus, that you don't believe even the things that you observe here. You're not going to believe other things that I tell you. And so the, the question of this, d- describing this objection to, to a belief, they just, it doesn't make sense. It's kind of the, 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 the issue that has trickled through even to our day. The Apostle Paul explained it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, described it this way. Just listen. He says, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Get this. Now, Jews demand a sign. Greeks, that's, that'd be us, the non-Jewish people, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, describes, he says, practically speaking, it's foolishness. It's folly. That's the way that the Greeks or the, the, the modern ear hears the message of Christ. I mean, stop and think about what we preach. We preach that there was a, a carpenter, an itinerant carpenter, 2,000 years ago that lived in a know-nothing part of the world who had three years where he kind of taught some things that by and large, just his moral teachings weren't a lot different than what other people taught, save one thing, that he was God. And that if you killed him, he'd come back to life. And he did, at least by the, the testimony of those that witnessed it. That's what we preach. And many people listen to that and go, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what, what would, then you would ask them this. I was asked, what, what should be the cause? What should be the story? What, what makes sense to you? And almost everybody, every other religion, every other belief, it always boils down to this. Well, I, to get to heaven, I need to do something. I need to be good enough. I need to be able to earn it in some capacity. My, my good has to outweigh my bad or what? They create some sort of standard of human achievement. And Jesus is saying, listen to Nicodemus, who was a very self-righteous guy. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler. He was a leader. He's saying, listen, all of these things that you've based your life on, it's not going to cut it. You're never going to be good enough. But most people, if you ask them, that's what they state. Remember the video I showed last week? How do you get to heaven? So many people. You got to 
do more good than bad. You got to earn it. You got to. But Jesus then, he says, that's not it. And then he gives this Old Testament account to kind of illustrate it. It's an interesting account. Verse 14, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Now, some of you know what he's talking about here, but for those of you who don't, let me explain. In the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 21, there's an account. I'll I'll read it to you. It says this. They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around to the east, to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we hate this worthless food that we do have. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, here's what Jesus referenced, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the Israelites, they're wandering around in the desert, and one day, like pretty much every other day with him, they got mad. They didn't like the food, okay? It's just that that's a complaint for people forever. They didn't like the food, and they go to Moses, and they say, hey, do something. And God gets angry. He sends these serpents, and people get bit. Some die, and then they go, and they say, we messed up. Please pray for us. And Moses does. And God, this is his, what God says to him. Make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole and stick it up. Now, if anybody looks at it, they get bit and they, they have faith to look at it, they'll be healed. And so in the New Testament, Jesus clearly says this, this is a type in the Old Testament. This is a foreshadowing in the Old Testament pointing to something that's now about to take place with me is what Jesus is saying. Just as Moses had to put up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now when he says lifted up, that's a reference to his crucifixion, maybe even his crucifixion and his ascension into heaven. But Jesus is saying what happened with those Old Testament folks is, is, is a picture of what's going to happen for those that believe. They must believe. Now, what's interesting about this account, and he says that in the next verse, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, verse 15, is this illustrates a little bit about what type of belief is required. Let me get a chair. You've probably heard, seen this illustration before, but oh well, if you have, you're going to see it again. I can have this stool, put this stool here and say, I believe this stool will hold me up. I think it can hold me up. I have perfect confidence that if I sat down, it looks flat. Everything's great. I have faith that this chair will hold me up, which is fine. But what haven't I done yet? I haven't sat in it. In other words, I can you know, say whatever I want about it, but until the point that I actually engage my faith and sit in it, I don't really have, I've never demonstrated the actual faith that's required about the chair. And when he... Jesus is talking about this episode in the Old Testament of the fiery serpent. There's an important point. He puts the pole, puts the serpent up there, and then what it says in the Old Testament, anyone would look at the bronze serpent, they would live. Now let me ask you, if you got bit by a snake today, and I've read people around here that get bit by snakes, there are a few nice things about Pennsylvania, none of our snakes can really hurt you. But here there are some that can, you know... Make your legs swell up. Kill you, right? If you got bit by a snake, what would be the first thing you would do? 
besides yell. <laughs> ah, you probably want to get to the hospital. You want to go get the poison out, do something, right? What if somebody said, well, you know, you just got to go look at this thing over here? Doesn't make sense, right? I mean, that seems, yeah, that would be a, a big act of faith while you're dying. These people have seen people die, and their only hope is to go look at this bronze serpent. But if they looked, it worked, didn't it? Jesus is demonstrating to Nicodemus, who has built his life on the foundation of his own self-righteousness. He's built his life on the practical way that most of the world looks at to say, this must be the way you earn righteousness before God, your good works, your effort, your human achievement. He's looking at Nicodemus saying, no, it's not that. You have to believe in me. That whoever believes in him, the son of man, Jesus is referring to himself, will have eternal life. And so the question is, do you have that belief? One of the practical applications of this particular point of of the sermon is to look at our culture and society today, even amongst those that claim to be Christians and say, do they really believe this way? Do they really believe and demonstrate it? One of the things that I, I do as a pastor, I read things and stay up to date on certain things when it comes to, you know, the state of Christianity in our culture. And this past week, there have been a lot of, of, I guess past couple of weeks, stories about the rise of what are called the nuns. Not like with, you know, the flying nun and that kind of thing. Not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. The people who, when they're asked about their religious beliefs, say they don't have any. What's your religious affiliation? None. And the reason why it's been in the news is, is several of the fairly large research groups have said these people that classify themselves this way have now become the largest group of people in the country. There's a little bit more of them than there are Catholics. There are a little bit more of them right around the same amount as there are of, of Protestant or of evangelicals. And so it's this idea in most of these articles that you read that there's this, this growing sense of our country is going to soon be completely secularized. Everything is, is collapsing when it comes to Christianity. But because I'm a pastor and this is what I do, I, I dig a little bit deeper. And it's not really the case. Ed Stetzer, he's a statistician and does a lot of other things, but he kind of talked about this and clarified it. He said, it's not that Christianity is collapsing, it's being clarified. And what he meant by that is he said, if you really dig into the people that are calling themselves none, when they're asked if they have any religious affiliation and they say no, what that really is just indicating to us are these are people that at one time they showed up at church or said they were a denomination or whatever because that was the culturally acceptable thing to do. Nobody just said none. They'd be like, I'm, I'm Methodist or Episcopalian or whatever. But now it doesn't really matter, so those folks are fine with just saying nothing. Because at the same time that group is rising, the number of evangelicals is actually on the rise as well. In fact, there is an 18% rise in the past 20 years of people who claim to be evangelical in our society as well. And so what we really see is not so much this, this dying of Christianity as much as we see those who... As, as we talk about here, they, they look to the Son of Man that hey, they may have eternal life. They're, they're being put over here. And the ones that are just kind of in the middle, kind of like the Nicodemus, they're going saying, I, I don't believe any of that anymore. In other words, the difference between Christians and non-Christians is growing in our society. And our culture is no longer, hey, just generally Christian at its base. And what that really means for us is in a weird sort of way, it's a good thing. 
I can't wait for the death of cultural Christianity, of people that just kind of drift through saying, sure, whatever, this or that. If it doesn't cost anything, then, then it becomes that way, kind of meaningless to a large group of people. In other words, now when we go out there and we say, yes, I believe, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would have eternal life, and if you don't, you will perish. It's not a popular thing anymore. It costs us something. And so Jesus, in describing this objection to belief, it doesn't make sense. We're seeing that amplified in our culture today. And what that means for us as cornerstone is we have to stand firmly on the truth of the gospel. Part of the rise of those nuns are really the death of a lot of the mainline denominations. Churches that for many years stood firm in the word of God and then they began to waver. And they've hemorrhaged more and more people. Because they wanted to try and make the gospel more palatable, make it easier, make it whatever you want to fill in, and it doesn't work. Jesus describes the objection to belief. It doesn't make sense. Then in the next few verses, he describes the object of belief. It's himself. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We're very familiar with that verse, but the next two help fill it in. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. When we first look at the object of faith, we have to start right where it starts because of God's love. Salvation starts with the love of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so thankful that salvation is not dependent on my anything. It's dependent on the love of God. He loved the world. He gave one way, his only son. There are not multiple ways. It is one way for all of the world. One of the beautiful things about this as well is that the faith is dependent on Jesus. One of the big mistakes of our society today when it comes to faith is just saying you just need to be sincere. Whatever it is you believe, that's great. Just be sincere in your beliefs. Well, you can sincerely believe the wrong thing. And many people do. The, the level of your sincerity is irrelevant. It's the object of your belief. I can sincerely believe I could walk off the, the front of this stage and not fall on my face without, you know, stepping down. Good for me. I will fall on my face. You have to believe in Jesus, the one and only Son of God, and then he gives the, otherwise you perish or you have eternal life. Now, the next two verses that fill this out for us, verse 17 says this is the reason Jesus came. Jesus didn't need to come to condemn the world or to announce to the world that they were lost and on their way to eternal separation from God. That took place way back at the fall. Adam and Eve sinned as God pronounced a curse on Adam and Eve. From that point on, Adam and Eve and their offspring were condemned before God. Their sin was part of their nature. If they didn't do anything, that's, they were headed away from God. That's what verse 18 teaches us. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. When I was a kid, we used to go sled riding. We had this big hill in my neighbor's house. And this hill, you would go down and at the bottom, it would flatten out for about 20 or 30 feet. And then at the end of that 20 feet, there was a creek. You know, it was maybe five or six feet wide. And we knew about the creek. And we knew that once you were on the top of the hill and your sled began to go down the hill, if nothing else changed, you were going to end up in the creek. 
I mean, if you didn't do anything to stop yourself or prevent it, that was your destination. We built ramps over the thing. We tried to fill it up with, sometimes we'd make the jump. Sometimes we had to go home and change clothes because it was cold. (laughs) Sometimes you just fall off the sled. You did whatever you had to do, but you didn't want to end up there. But you knew something had to be different because that was the inevitable result. For those that don't believe in Jesus Christ, that's the inevitable result. Separation from God. When it says perish or condemnation, it is, it's not that you just cease to exist or annihilationism or any of those things that sometimes, it is, as Revelation teaches us, eternal damnation. Every person born is on that path unless something changes. It is a scary, life-jarring thought for all of us to have when it comes to ourselves and the people we know and this world. If there's anything that inspires missions, evangelism, doing what God has called us to do, it's this truth. Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. This is the gospel. This is the message that we preach. God loved the world, but you must believe in him. So the final couple of verses then describes the obstruction to belief. Why is this so difficult? Why is this such a big deal? It's because people love their sin. Verse 19, this is the judgment. This is the condemnation. The light has come into the world. John has already described that Jesus is the light. He comes into the world, the darkness. Remember in chapter 1. And then this, this terrible phrase, the people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. We've all, maybe not all, but almost all of us have seen those people that get addicted to drugs. Devastating addiction to drugs. And we've watched some of these people, some of us know them, we've watched their lives just completely implode. And we've seen where they've lost friends, family, their health, their possessions. They have nothing. They're separated from everything. And you look at them and you say, just quit. There's so much more to live for. There's so many other things out here. But they just, the the addiction to the drug is so strong, it overrides the, the desire, whatever it is they want, to be able to get clean. And in this description here, Jesus describes to them this obstruction to belief. The biggest problem is people's love of their sin. This is the judgment. They love their, their works for evil. They love the darkness rather than the light. The wicked, everyone who does the wicked things hates the light. They don't want them to be exposed. They don't want to see them. They don't want to deal with them. They're like Nicodemus. He was a self-righteous Pharisee. He had everything that he thought was important. These were his deeds that he had built his life on. His pride. And he'd have to give it up. He'd have to repent. To come to Christ, he'd have to set all that aside. And for each and every person, there comes a point where you say, coming to Jesus, deciding to follow him, believe in him, sitting in the chair, means you've got to give up something. You've got to give up standing on your feet to sit here. Believing in Jesus means you repent. You say, I don't want to be the, the, the king of my own life. I don't love my sin this much. I want him. I call on him. And then Jesus brings it all together in verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You go to the light, you go to Christ. Not in any self-righteous way, not in making any demands on him, but just saying, please save my soul. 
Forgive me for my sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul writes this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then verse 10. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And when we come to Christ, we call on him. Our heart is changed. As, as we saw in Ezekiel last week, we get a heart of flesh. The spirit is put within us. As the songs we sang today, we are led by the Holy Spirit and we walk in the works that God prepared beforehand for us. We begin to see the evidence of new birth in our lives. We begin to see the change. We're not perfect. Everything isn't gone completely from the things that trip us up. But we repent of those. We turn to those. We want our deeds exposed. We want to change. We want to be like Christ. So let me ask you this. Have you come to him or do you hide your deeds? Do you want to stay in your sin? Now I make no illusions. This is the Sunday morning crowd. This is the week after Easter. You know, everybody, everybody came last, but this is the week after Easter and you're here. But what I'm teaching and preaching on this morning is not, this is basic. This is the gospel. You've heard this. This is John 3.16. There's a reason why it's right here at the beginning of, of the book. It's laying out, this is to, to, believe, to be born again. It's how you see the kingdom of God. How are you born again? You believe in Jesus Christ. So for many of you in this room, you're like, yes, I know that. And I've been there and I've done that. I've turned over my sins. I've seen the spirit work in my life. And so my challenge to you this morning is, is simply this. As we close here in just a few minutes, I'm going to have a, a time of prayer. Is just to go back to that last verse of this. Where he says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out by God. What are the works that God is, is challenging you in your life right now? What has the Holy Spirit been prompting you to do, to be involved? It's easy for us as we, we say, yes, I believe, I do all these, yeah, I trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But then to kind of, if we're not careful, put our lives a little bit on cruise control. Just kind of do what we do all of the time. And if we're not careful, we're not listening to the prompts of the Holy Spirit in our lives saying, hey, what about... I'm leading you. And so that was one of my challenges for those that, you know, this is a, a part of your life is to see those works, to come to the light, repent of the sins that you may have lingering in your life, continue to come back to him. But I also make no, uh, I'm, not, I'm not deluded into thinking that in a room this size, there's not some people that still just don't believe. They've heard John three sixteen. They may have heard these verses before, but the truth is, they're like so many in America, it's, it's just an intellectual thing. It's like looking at the chair saying, yeah, I see it. I know what it is. I believe it would hold me up. And these are the people that say, I've heard the message of Jesus. I believe there was a guy that lived. Yes, I know he died. But you haven't done this. You haven't said, Jesus, here's my life. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. And I'm going to dismiss you. And I would encourage you before you go to sit there and, and, and say, I want Jesus as the Lord of my life. You simply cry out to him saying, please forgive me of my sins. Save me from my sins. I want to put my faith in life and trust in you. How that continues to work out in your life, we'll work on that. Come down and talk to me. Please speak to me. Call me up this week, whatever it is that you need to do. But remember what this verse teaches us, what this passage. Those who haven't believed are condemned already. You're headed down the hill towards the creek. And if nothing changes, you're going in.